Hello and welcome to the third episode of Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTOcraft and Skiller Whale, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow. On Stack Overflow, questions have to have a single right answer, and the questions can be closed and archived if they're deemed to be primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer. They are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers to it and the context that makes those answers appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skiller Whale. Before that, I was a CTO for 10 years. I ran events called Tech Leader Dinners for three and a bit years as well. And I've been a CTO coach too. And one thing I found in all of those roles is that the same questions come up in different organizations, but with different answers every time because context is critical. Today, we're going to be answering a question about the right way to do Agile. And here with me to answer that is Squirrel. Squirrel, tell us about yourself. Hi there, I'm Squirrel. I'm an expert on making uh, technology teams profitable, and insanely so, in fact. And I've been doing that for 21 years now. Uh, In the last six years, I've been a consultant. So I work with lots and lots of different organizations. The count is it's something like 112, but I've actually lost count. So it's probably more than that. Uh, So working with loads and loads of different organizations, doing um, uh, evaluations, coaching, um, uh, projects to improve performance, um, transforming uh, how teams work, all kinds of crazy things. And I've worked with Howell, so that's why you're my old friend, that's, that we, we work together uh, on just such a project. We certainly did. And I, I think that context that you bring will be really useful, particularly for this question, um, because I think agile is such a pervasive topic. Now, everyone knows that they need to be agile and not waterfall. And I think a lot of people look at the range of sort of preset methodologies that exist and things like Scrum. And I suspect people in our situation often hear those specific questions about, you know, how exactly should I implement this? What's the right length for a sprint? How often do I need to groom my backlog or other kind of questions or statements? Like um, I, I saw someone recently saying something like, if you're not doing planning poker once per sprint, then you're not doing agile. I suspect between us, we've seen quite a lot of different tech orgs. Oh, well, that, that's completely wrong because what, what's missing there. There, there's there's something very important missing there, which is uh, you need to have the right color of cards, right? If your cards are red and blue, then then your your planning poker is completely screwed up. Got got to have red um, red and purple. That that's the correct way to do your uh, planning poker. I'm sure we can. <laughs> no, uh, I, I can't keep that up for very long. There's <laughs> nothing nothing less true uh, that that you could possibly say. And in fact, I wrote an entire book about uh, with my uh, very good friend Jeffrey Frederick on why exactly that kind of thinking is. Um, uh, uh, the, the the death knell of productivity and pro- profitability in tech teams. Mm. Well, without asking you to recite all of your book, I, sub- I mean, it would be great to kind of get the the kind of two sentence. I could start at there. chapter one. Yeah, <laughs> it might be a slightly longer than usual episode for us if you do that. I mean, do you think that either of us know a best, a single best way to, to do agile? So I definitely don't think there's a single best way to do agile development. Um, and and uh, um, there's definitely um, uh, no single way to do it. How did we get to the place where we are, where there are all these um, kind of cookie cutter um, uh, color of poking, uh, planning poker cards uh, recipes for doing agile right, whatever on earth that could possibly mean? Um, and there, there's a whole history. I, you know, go into it if you want to, all the way back to the 90s, how we started with um, uh, methods that... Um, uh, seemed really well-intentioned, seemed like a good idea, but they were just factories. They, we were just constructing factories that um, churned out um, uh, re, re, um, mm. uh, uh, 
uh, uncreative, um, uh, con context-free results, and very slowly and, and very ineffectively. And then we had Agile, which brought some new ideas, and then Agile kind of got factoryized. And, and that's the danger. That's where if you aren't thinking in contextual terms, if you aren't thinking about what matters for you and what your situation is, you will wind up worrying about what color your planning poker cards are. Because the book that you're reading your, your kind of script from tells you that they have to be red and purple. And so that must be right. Do you see what I see, Squirrel, that Agile is, being, is often used to just mean Scrum, this one particular methodology? It's terrible. Uh, and, and actually, um, I don't use the term very much. I don't tend to use it. I don't tend to say, uh, well, what we need is more agile over here. We need to be more agile. But what we need is to do more uh, agile development. That doesn't tend to be the most important thing for making your tech team profitable, which is what I'm always thinking about. How can you make more out of your tech team? How can you get a greater result? How can tech teams promote the results uh, of their businesses? Agility uh, with a capital A is not the important thing. DevOps is not the important thing. Remember, actually, that's not the name of a, uh, that's not the title of a person, by the way. That person can't be a DevOps. DevOps is a, a method. Okay, sorry, I'll, I'll stop ranting about that topic. But um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the DevOps is a, is a philosophy. It's a method of uh, building software, just like Agile is. Um, and, and they're both adjectives, and they describe how people might work. But the, the important thing is not that we be more agile or that we be more DevOps or that we be more lean or uh, pick your, we use the Spotify model more effectively. None of those things are the important thing. Question is, are we making more profit? Are we getting more results? Are, are we putting, uh, do we ultimately have a kind of a positive pressure where we're, we're getting more out of the uh, engineering team than we put into it? If that's not happening, there's no point in any of it. And uh, you're absolutely right that there's... Um, uh, all kinds of misuses, not only saying, well, Agile must mean Scrum, but um, uh, uh, my, one of my favorites uh, that I love uh, uh, debunking is uh, Agile teams don't have deadlines. Just complete balderdash. I don't know where this stuff comes from. Um, it, it certainly would not mash, match with anything that the early Agilists back in the early 2000s would have said about it. And it's uh, it, uh, even if it were that that's what people believe, even if it were true that on, Agile was only Scrum, and even if it were true that Agile uh, uh, was not compatible with deadlines, then we should throw away Agile <laughs> because mm. that's not helpful. Uh, those are not the things that we that we need to get out. And uh, that focus on um, bureaucratic compliance over business results is what I think is uh, uh, pervasive in our industry and uh, uh, content continuous problems to help people not do that. Mm. I think that bureaucratic compliance is a lovely way of describing it, actually. I think that's exactly exactly the problem. So can you tell me about some of the things you do look at when you're thinking about how to organize a team? Um, because I suspect we and most people listening will agree that the ideas in the Agile Manifesto are good ones that we should be adhering to. And whatever the way, however Agile the term gets used now, those are good things that we want to aim for typically. So then how do we achieve them if it's not the bureaucratic compliance with what, what the book on my favorite methodology says? Well, hey, I love the Agile Manifesto. I just brought it up so that I could respond to it and comment on it. I, I think it's a fantastic document. But I tend to ban when I'm coaching people, when I'm helping CTOs to transform their teams or uh, coaching a, a, a CEO in, in how to get more from his or her technology team. I tend to say you're not allowed to say the words best practice. And maybe I should also say you're not allowed to quote the Agile Manifesto. 
Because although it's very helpful as a guide to what sorts of um, behaviors might be helpful in many contexts, it's not true everywhere. There are certainly circumstances in which, for example, following a plan would be more important than responding to change. I can think of several. I'll just name one. It would be extremely helpful if we stuck to the plan for building our rocket ship that's going to go to Mars rather than responding to a change in Mars's location. Mars's location is known. We, we know what's going to happen. It does change, but we understand how Mars's location changes, moves around the sun, it goes in this orbit. It's unlikely to take a left turn and head off toward Pluto. Mars is going to be there. And we also have to launch our rocket at exactly the right time so that it gets to Mars. And if we launch it a millisecond too late or too early, it's not going to Mars. It's going someplace else. So it would be really useful for building a rocket ship going to Mars if we followed a plan and we weren't too worried about responding to change. Now, I'm exaggerating. There are certainly circumstances in which you know, discover that the rocket fuel you're going to build use isn't going to work or something like that, and that's a change. The, you know, your supplier runs out of uh, fins for your rocket. That's a change you probably should be responsive to. But um, I, I can, if, if I worked at it, I bet I could find um, contexts in which every item in the Agile Manifesto is not applicable. Because the Agile Manifesto was not a recipe. The people who got together at Snowbird in, in 2001 did not sit down and say, we're going to write down and carve into stone tablets and come down from this mountain. They were literally on a mountain. Come down for this mountain with the carved stone tablets that tell us exactly how to build software in every circumstance, in every context, for every person. The important thing is the dynamics. The, the structure is, is um, the, the size of your team and the color of your planning poker cards and how often you have the meetings and those sorts of things. That's important and it's helpful. But if I mimic your structure, uh, well, if I went to the, the team that we worked on together and I said, all right, so this team's functioning pretty well. You know, we worked on a project together. We got it running well. This was fantastic. Excellent. Uh, now let's do everything that that team's doing and let's bring it over into this other team's context. We'll do all the, exactly the same structure. And uh, we'll implement everything the same way, same frequency of planning means, same length of sprints, same way of uh, building software uh, mm -hmm. very quickly. That might not make any sense in somebody else's context, for example, if they're building a rocket ship to go to Mars. This is the team you and I worked on together, very responsive to change. We had um, changes happening all the time. It was a very dynamic environment, and some other environment might not be. Mm. So uh, the, the crucial thing to get right is the dynamics. How is the team evolving and changing and improving and uh, what's happening? What outputs are coming from the team? You're not in a situation in which you can say, oh, I have a recipe. I know if I put these ingredients in, I'm going to get a cake as a result. You might put in a whole bunch of ingredients and you get a car out. And that's the sort of surprising result <laughs> that you often get when you're working with humans and with humans dealing with extremely complex systems like software. Mm. And so if, if someone is a, is a tech leader listening to this and they're wondering how to evaluate their own context, you know, you mentioned the, the sort of dynamism and the potential, what things are fixed and what things are changing. What other things should, should someone be looking at to understand the context they're in and what, what defines it? Well, what, what people forget all the time in, in implementing agile uh, structures and processes the way we were just talking about is, is that the whole point of agile software development was to bring people into the equation to make sure that people were part of the process. An instinct that some people had, which just didn't work out, it just does not function, although lots of people continue to believe it'll, it'll work, is to try to get uh, all the people parts of it out. Yeah, automate everything you possibly can, uh, document everything to the nth degree, make sure you know what person will do which thing. Um, I remember huge booklet books of uh, um, 
coding standards and design documents and all kinds of things um, that, that we would get in the, in the late 90s when I started programming. And um, those were an attempt to kind of um, uh, uh, squeeze out all the humanity, all of the funny, uh, uh, unpredictable human elements. The problem is that doesn't work because the team is made of human beings. The uh, situation in which they're building the software changes all the time uh, due to human action. And, and so you got to deal with these very annoying humans. Uh, but we all have this instinct to try to avoid dealing with humans because they're unpredictable and, and, and difficult and, and um, uh, don't always do what we want. And we'd much rather deal with computers. After all, that's why we studied computer science, right? So we could deal with these nice machines that are, uh, at least when, in, in, until a cosmic ray hits them, tends to do the same thing. Yeah, you put the same results in, um, input in, you get the same results. Um, humans just aren't like that, and you shouldn't expect it. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of methods which are, are originally entertainingly, ironically, in the original um, Agile Manifesto and Agile Methods and so on, but people tend to forget them, which are all about understanding what the team needs. I'll just pick one of them. Ask me about more if you want to hear more. Um, uh, uh, people are very uh, obsessed with stories. How do I write my stories? Um, should I use the given when then, or should I use as a something I uh, want to something, etc.? Uh, should I have uh, 10 acceptance criteria or three? Um, well, the original, if you go way back to XP, extreme programming, um, the original um, projects on which that was developed, uh, they wrote it on physical um, index cards, no JIRA, hallelujah, you know, any way, any way to get away from JIRA is good for me. Uh, but on index cards, they would write, um, and maybe they would use something like an as a this, I want to that. Um, but uh, the, the, it was a brief description of what was going to happen, what the software would do that it hadn't done before. And the crucial thing about it was that the card was not the be all and end all. It wasn't something that you shipped off to Remotistan and had some developer build and then it came back to you and you hoped that it worked. Uh, and you did a whole bunch of designs and all kinds of material on it. The card was an invitation to a conversation. And that's the crucial thing that people forget all the time is that the conversations are at the heart of everything. So I'm finally coming to your question, Hal. Sorry, it takes me a while. But uh, the, the, um, uh, the point is that uh, the assessment that people it, uh, in inevitably forget, that, that, that's so common to, to leave out, is which human beings do we have? What are those human beings currently doing? Um, uh, and, and what conversations could I have with them? What conversations are missing that would help me to be better aligned with them so I can make use of the fact that they are humans and they can do all these unpredictable things? They are not computers. And for example, we might write a card that says, I I'd like to go to Mars. And in fact, um, it turns out that Venus is a much better destination. And the developer comes back and says, have you, have you thought of Venus? How about staying home? Uh, how about doing something different? That kind of conversation, we, we've kind of squeezed it all out. And uh, it, it's uh, in, in many of these quote unquote agile development environments, there's no opportunity for that kind of involvement and engagement. And I would suggest the very first thing to do is assess how much, how, how much humans, how, how much human nature, uh, how, how many uh, human actions are happening in your organization, how many are simply um, rote uh, activities that are, if, if only we had smart enough robots, they could do it. Mm. I think that's that's a really good point because the human side encompasses a lot, doesn't it? It includes the the other stakeholders within the organization. It includes the people in the team and their their abilities, their maturity, the way they they think about things. Um, in and I think it also it, it includes a very broad set of important constraints. I think there's another class of constraints, which is the sort of externalities, like you mentioned about maybe Mars takes a left turn one day, Venus turns out to be closer at this time of year, um, or something like that. And that 
I wonder if you could talk about some of the different things you've seen in your experience where those those things external to the organization have massive impact on how they need to think about what they do and how they organize their agile, for want of a better term, process. No, oh, well, I was just telling a story about one of these on, on my podcast uh, with, that I do with my co-author, Jeffrey, Troubleshooting Agile. Um, we, I was uh, leading a, a, a technology team. Uh, this is back before I became a consultant. And we were building a, a, a debit card for eight-year-olds. So uh, this was before we had uh, things like Monzo, and uh, I don't know what uh, the equivalent is in, in other countries, but you know these very um, forward-thinking uh, debit cards where you can see, run everything on an app, you can see everything that's happening. We think of it as normal now, but five, six, ten years ago, this was not um, uh, something you could do. Your bank would not provide this. And we were giving it to eight-year-olds so that they could learn about money, which was lots of fun. You, you had to pick them up so that they could put the numbers into the pin uh, machine, but that, that, that they still learned about how to save money uh, and, and the value thereof which was fantastic. But we got in trouble at one point because uh, at some point a, a, a reporter decided to go up and down the high street and go to every single pub uh, that, that he could find. He was a 40-year-old man. He had gotten one of our cards pretending to be his eight, uh, his nine-year-old daughter. We, we actually didn't think he had a daughter. He, he lied to us, but we don't know. Um, but anyway, he certainly was not um, nine years old. And he went to all those pubs until he found one that had a, um, uh, a banking machine that uh, had not been updated. So the bank machine still told us at, uh, at the debit card end uh, that it was a McDonald's. So he walked in and he tried to buy a beer at each of these, and we could see in the transaction history that his his purchase has been declined because he was trying to buy from a a, a pub, which we would not allow, um, until he got to the one that said it was a McDonald's, but um, and, and it just hadn't been updated. And of course, a nine year old would not have got served a beer; <laughs> the publican would have thrown her mm. out. But a forty year old man with a funny shaped card, a funny colored card. And they wouldn't bat an eye at that. And of course they served him. So uh, we, we got a phone call in exactly the week when our founder was enjoying his first holiday in two years in a remote island to which I had the only phone number um, uh, from the uh, um, uh, from the newspaper saying, uh, hey, we're running a front page story. We just thought we'd like to know what your comment is on <laughs> the fact that you can buy beer and, and other evil things uh, with this card. So, so there's an example of an externality that you absolutely could not plan for. And um, that's where it's mm. so super important to make sure you have the human dynamics right rather than only the structure. Because if somebody came along and said, yeah, you know, there's some features we need to build so we don't get the company turned off by the credit card provider, because you can imagine the credit card provider did not think very highly of this. Uh, 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 the, um, they, they, they didn't say, oh, yeah, we, we think this is a great thing. We're glad you're on the front page. No, uh, they were very unhappy. We had to do a whole lot of... Uh, changes in management and, and other things. And if you'd gone back to them and said, oh, yeah, well, we're in the middle of our sprint. You know, we can't break our sprint. Uh, what we need to do is continue with the structure here. We've already planned all this work. I mean, you know, this is not possible for us. So sorry, you know, we'll, you'll have to wait a month or so until we have our uh, uh, our next release for us to make these changes. That, that was not going to go over, right? We needed to get off the front page quickly. The uh, moral of the story, the final end is, of course, we, we did make all the changes we needed to because we had uh, carefully aligned. We had the right conversations and the team was ready to make rapid changes in responses to in response to very unexpected external events. And uh, we uh, got out of trouble with the credit card provider. Um, the, the newspaper ran a story about how they had saved children from the terrible uh, plague of our, our card, which allowed you to buy beer. And that we ran on page 16 rather than the front page. So that, that's a, mm. a, an example of dealing with an externality through 
very good dynamics and better conversations. I like that story a lot, and I think it applies in many other kind of externality contexts. It reminded me as you were speaking of a story of a company I was working at um, where they'd had a really severe security problem in the past that had been made much, much worse because um, they had accidentally and inadvertently uh, made an made an incorrect public statement following the security disaster that they had. I'm studiously not saying anything to allow identification of the company themselves. Um, they had accidentally made things worse. And as a result, from then on, the security posture was much, much stricter than you would expect for a company in that industry doing what they did, just because of the reputation, the reputational damage that would be caused by them having another security incident sort of following up on that first one and those things are you know you can't go into that situation and say well hang on we don't need to be this secure come on like that's that's not in the handbook of how companies in this industry should operate i'm curious whether there are any bits of process or any ideas that you do try and bring to every organization. Um, and I say that I, I had a chance to think about this before the recording, and I know I'm springing this question on you, but I have managed to think of one thing that for me feels like a universal. Bring away. I like it. <laughs> is, there, is there one thing for you that you would bring to every every team you worked with that you would try and institute that or something like it? Uh, interesting. Um, I'd say it's a a philosophy rather than a method or a process. So I, uh, our silly example of the colored uh, planning poker cards is the opposite of what I'm about to describe. Um, but uh, paying very close attention to conversations is, I think, the the, the key thing for me uh, that I do use in in every circumstance. Having a, a alignment and uh, having difficult conversations with other people in the organization about things that were uncomfortable, that may be hidden, that may be um, uh, people are avoiding. Uh, tends to be the real breakthrough that that I see over and over again. But but it's more a heuristic than um, than a process. I can't say now what you need to do is have a difficult conversation with the marketing department in every circumstance. Go find the marketing department, have a conversation about uh, delivery or product placement or whatever it is that you're you're, you're doing, whatever your positioning is. That that wouldn't work. That's like the the, the a more refined version of the colored planning poker cards. But what does work is to say uh, which conversations are you avoiding? Which people are uh, are you, do you have beliefs about? that uh, you haven't validated. Those are called attributions. That's a fancy name. Um, and then how could you prepare? What what conversations do you have with them that aren't effective? How could you analyze those conversations, make them first-class elements of your de- um, software development process? Uh, the conversations, it's very surprising uh, to, to think of them as elements of software development, but they are. And wh- how could I make those conversations better? And, and, and that's one thing that I teach people over and over again is a... Um, uh, a, a set of techniques um, uh, that really help. They're really step-by-step um, uh, uh, detailed methods that you can follow for improving your conversations. And um, that has a um, absolutely astonishing uh, and absolutely consistent uh, positive effect on profitability of your tech team. Suddenly you're able to have a conversation about, say, uh, why suddenly um, <laughs> I'm brandishing the newspaper and saying, wait a minute, we need to do something about this. What, what, why am I doing that when you're in the middle of your comfortable sprint? Uh, if you know that and, and, and you can react to it and you're aligned with me in a productive way, 
um, we, we will have a, a briefer conversation. We'll have a much more effective conversation. And we'll, most, most importantly, we'll have a much more effective result um, uh, because you and I will be aligned ahead of time. If you and I are avoiding a difficult conversation, if you believe that um, I, I, I'm always bugging you with useless uh, demands and I think that you're a lazy developer who never uh, wants to do anything that isn't technical, we're not going to have a very effective conversation. It's going to be a longer one. We're not going to get to a good result. Uh, we're not going to get to a good plan for addressing this immediate crisis, and we aren't going to get uh, a, a result that you know, saves the company in this particular case. Over and over again, I see that mm. that heuristic, where's, where are people avoiding conversations and what can we do about it, is the key one that unlocks profitability. Mm. That makes a lot of sense, and it doesn't seem that surprising in a way because it's so much of... People talk a lot in software development about velocity, and I think velocity often gets confused with speed, but velocity is actually a speed and a direction. And if you only think about it in terms of speed, there's a chance you're going in the wrong direction. And to me, the conversations you describe are exactly about that alignment of directions so that the way that the software team is pulling, which is a, a pull that often gathers quite a lot of momentum behind it, is the correct one. And it is the way that the, the company needs. Um, the thing I had in mind actually is is another conversation, but it's a very specific one. It's the idea of reflection and improvement and a conversation for that, which often gets called a retrospective. I think that's what it's called in the Scrum methodology. But that idea of people sitting down and talking about what they've done and how they do it better is something that for me is has always seemed like a universal, a universally good thing um, that I would bring bring to, to any team I worked with in one form or another. Well, I used to say, if I had, if I could only do one thing in a technology organization, I would say, uh, have, have retrospectives and, and have them regularly and then take action on them. And then all the other things would flow. So you would figure out what everything mm. else was that you needed to do, which might be planning poker with the right colored cards. Maybe in your context, that's most important, but you would find that out from the retrospective. So I've, I, I, I used to say that. Um, but I replaced that with this broader heuristic uh, because uh, the problem with the retrospective is it tends to be internal. It tends to be just the people within your team. And most commonly, the people with whom you have to have the difficult conversation, there are certainly plenty in your team. So it might be that the QA person and the um, uh, product manager are, are, uh, have some negative attributions about each other. There are some conversations they could hold better. Uh, your stand-ups are too long because um, people are assuming the wrong things and, and aren't, uh, have, have, aren't having a good dialogue and, and haven't learned how to have better conversations in their stand-ups. Those are things you'll learn from a retrospective and that, that you can address. But your difficulty may actually be you're going in completely the wrong direction. And six months from now, you're going to find out that sales has been selling something different than what your product is. And avoiding the conversation has caused you not to know that piece of information. And all your retrospectives have made your team much more effective at going the wrong direction. So uh, mm. I, I prefer the broader approach because it gets you outside the team. And that's often one of the most difficult. It's one of the most challenging uh, directions to go, but it's one of the most valuable. Squirrel, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I think this has been really useful as a way of shifting people's thinking and hopefully to consider their context and the needs of their organization rather than just taking an approach of bureaucratic compliance to some predefined process. You can find Squirrel at douglasquirrel.com or you can listen to him on his podcast with Jeffrey Frederick, Troubleshooting Agile or the book they wrote together, Agile Conversations. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll join us next time when we will be talking about another question that's primarily context-based. 